0: Um, as we move this morning now into the preaching of God's word, you know I've been walking through the book of First Peter, and uh, the the beauty of that is uh, that you preach through God's word and you don't dodge anything, you know. And the and the the danger and the scary part of that is you preach through God's word and you don't skip over anything. And so uh, <clears throat> so this morning there's a small amount. I don't. I don't want to say it's fear and trembling. There is this in terms of preaching God's word. It's it's being not misunderstood but being understood. And, and the things that we say in the church sometimes uh, seem old-fashioned. They're not old-fashioned, they're biblical. Um, and so we say them, but, there is, but we say them in the midst of a culture who has moved past them and who ridicules them. And so I don't know where you are this morning on some of these things, but you'll see we are in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and we're talking about Christ-like willing submission of wives to their husbands. Next week we are going to address, I'm going to address husbands. And if you're a husband or you're a man here this morning, you, unless providentially hindered, should be here next week, that God may speak into your life in a similar way. Because God, I think, has things to say to both of us. And wives, as I speak to you this morning, know that um, I am going to speak to your husbands We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear then the word of God. He says, likewise, connecting back to what he's been saying, likewise, wives, be subject, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and clothing to wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Pray with me. Father in heaven, it is to your word that we come this morning. Father, we come with baggage, we come with fear, we come with sometimes even confusion, and we come wondering, but we long for you to speak. Would you give clarity from your word this morning? Would you speak to us about what this means in our day and age, in our marriages, Would you speak to us about the design that you have for us? In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. You'll see the first quote in your bulletin under the uh, first point there is from a historian, William Manchester, and he said that the erasure of distinctions between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, but it may be the most profound that our race, the human race, has ever confronted—that's quite a statement. Not not just a profound issue for our time. Some of the the erasing of distinctions and erasing of some of these lines of our time, but in the history of our race, it's it's a significant shift. We live in and, and swim in this postmodern culture. It's it's a, a culture that has pushed away. All absolutes, absolute truth. And so it's erasing the line between truth and, and false, and between what is absolutely true and, and what we simply believe in opinions. But it's also been erasing then, because there's no absolute truth, it's erasing moral lines, right? It is, it is dwindling the distinction between right and wrong on a moral level. And so they've taken the great eraser and they've applied it to gender. And it becomes in this whole thing where there's no absolute truth and there's no absolute morality and right and wrong. And you know what? There's not even any absolute gender. So we start talking about transgender. And we start erasing the lines of distinction where sexuality and gender have just become another choice among any choices of what you're going to believe and do, what is right, what is wrong. Gender itself has become in some ways irrelevant. But femininity and masculinity are God-given categories. You cannot read your Bible starting in Genesis 1 and 2 and all the way to the end to see that passages like this and they can be multiplied, that that these categories are God-given categories. Each one, each gender, masculinity and femininity with a separate and distinct beauty and intention by the God who created them. Created us. Genesis 127. It says that the image of God. In the image of God. He created him. And male and female. He created them. And I believe it's a statement of saying. That we together embody the image of God. In our masculinity. And in our femininity. As complementary uh, ways that God has made. And distinguished us. That we together image God that we reflect who He is and what He is like, and it takes both. And Scripture presents this God-given complementarity as a beauty, as there are distinct strengths and distinct roles that we have to play. And it presents the genders, I believe, there standing as both of them imaging God. In In His image, He created us male and female. He creates us, in that sense, before Him, equal. but different. And in being different, there are different roles and responsibilities that he has given to us. And we see it physically in the way that we are made. And things that one one gender is able to do that the other is not. And God has designed it that way. We are different. We are wired differently. And so throughout Scripture, living out our God-given roles is simply one aspect of our godliness. And that actually living out our God-given gender roles, who we are and what He has made us to be, is part of our godliness as we reflect back His image and His goodness to Him. And so Peter has been speaking throughout this passage. You know we're starting in chapter 3, but it starts with that word likewise. You know, and it could be, you know, the word therefore. You always say, what is the therefore, therefore? And it always is pointing back to something. And likewise, is the same way. He's likening it to the things he's been talking about up to this point. And really, this all goes back to even verse 11, where he is addressing again the church as that sojourning exiled people, right? I heard you as sojourners and as exiles, right? In verse 12, he says, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, right? As God's distinct people, We are a distinct sojourning people. This is not our home. We just sang about Jordan's stormy banks as we long for the time and the place where we will be with him. And so as we sojourn as his unique people, he says, live among the Gentiles in a way that keeps your conduct honorable. And then in verse 13, he opens this whole section and we're still in it. That he starts in verse 13, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he starts with the emperor and with governors in verse 18. He talks about servants and masters and he talks about about the Christian virtue of submission. It's a Christian virtue that imitates Christ, who himself was submissive. And so he says for those two ways, he talks about governors and emperors and masters and servants, and then he says in verse 1 of chapter 3 where we've started, likewise, which means, translated, in the same way, in the same way that you've been thinking about it in these other categories, in the same way, wives submit, he says, to your own husbands. Be subject to or submit to your own husbands. Now, it's an important distinction to note immediately that it's not saying that women should submit to men, right? But it is saying that wives should submit to their own, and that word is distinct in the Greek, and it's used again in Ephesians that we'll see in a moment, and it's used in both places to say your own husband, as if to distinguish it from all other men, right? So he's talking about there is a unique economy in marriage, there's a unique structure in marriage that God has designed. We see this structure, and, I, and I've put it in there, <clears throat> and some people say, well, this structure and some of these things that Paul is saying, are just, they're just cultural. When Paul talks about these roles that men and women have, he's addressing it within this ancient Roman culture, and so it's probably, this is probably just some carryover of a cultural baggage from that time. But interestingly, when Paul addresses these issues, and he seeks to justify and explain them and to ground the church in them, where he appeals is not the culture. And it might be easy to say, hey, to win them, Paul says at one point, hey, to win them, I become all things to all men. To one who's like this, I become like this. And to another who's like that, I become like that. Why? To win them. And if he is saying, well, to win your wives, you should become you know, become like this. Why? Because you can just simply win them. But that's not what he does. When he talks about these issues in the context of the church in 1 Timothy 2, I believe this did make it, if it, if it didn't in your bulletin. 1 Timothy 2.13, he says, in explaining why... There is this economy. He says, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Right? He goes to Genesis. He goes to the creation, the creational order, the way God made things from the very beginning, the way God designed it, the the, the very fabric of what God was doing when he made us male and female in his own image. And he said, "There, there is an order to things, and the way that things unfold and unpack are meaningful. In the scripture, And so when you get to Ephesians 5, which is the classic passage that deals with this, and there's no way you could talk about what Peter's saying and not pull Ephesians 5 in and to hear Paul. Because as Paul describes this relationship, this economy within a marriage, this relationship between a husband and a wife, he likens it, again, not as something you do simply to win the culture. It's not even envisioned here at all. What he says is, in your marriage, there's a little picture going on a picture of Christ and his church and, and the relationship between Jesus has with his church and the very nature of that relationship he says you take it home and in your marriage and in your home it is lived out and we reflect back the beauty and the glory of Christ and his church in the way that our homes are run and ordered it's there first Ephesians 5 21 he says this Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there is a mutual submission. And we always need to start here. Submitting, subjecting ourselves one to another. So husbands will submit too. They'll submit next week. Right? And we'll talk about their unique submission. The unique calling that is on them as men and as husbands. So there's a mutual submission. But so he says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. For Christ's sake... Not for the culture's sake, but in obedience to Christ, right? He says, wives, submit again to your own husbands as to the Lord. For, because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of his church, the body, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. A lot of people just skip all of this, write it off as cultural. I don't believe it gives us room to do that. When he takes it, when he takes this whole issue and he pulls it in and he says, as the church submits to Jesus, as there is an economy, a, a, a structure in the way that this works, a design. And he says, in that way, as to the Lord, there is this same economy at home. He is describing where authority resides in a marriage and how a marriage relationship should function. And so Peter and Paul are both calling the, the wives of the church to a distinct version of holiness. A distinct version of godliness. A distinct version of what it looks like to be obedient to Christ and to live in reverence to Christ. And so... Verse 1, he says to be subject, wives to your own husbands, to submit ourselves. It's a term that's used in the same, uh, in in the Greek here, the same word that's being used here. It can be used in a military context. And the military is, is the whole idea of soldiers coming under authority, right? A soldier that comes under authority and so they willingly get in line. If you join the army, like in a sense, you signed up for this. And when he says get in line, you get in line. And so there's a willing coming under of authority, of leadership, of getting in line behind somebody else to follow another's lead. Negatively, it's to not take authority, to not take control over. So what he says, when a woman is to be subject or to be submissive, positively, it's to come under authority, it's to come under leadership, and negatively, it's to not take authority over, it's to not take over. To not take control and to rule. And so it refers to a genuine willingness in the whole thing, in this whole picture, whether it's in the Ephesians passage or here or anywhere else, everything that you and I are called to as we follow Jesus Christ, one of the most important factors in that call and in that command is how the heart responds. Right? And so this is this is called not to gritting your teeth, wives, grit your teeth and and you know, and buckle down and just do it because. But he calls, he speaks to the heart, and you'll see as we walk through this passage, he, he reaches in for the for the heart of a woman. As he always reaches for our hearts, and next week, man, he will reach for our hearts, as he calls us to our unique calling. And so it's not it's not something that's grudgingly done. This is a a willing submission out of reverence for Christ as his his very calling upon us. It does not mean always agreeing with your husband. It does not mean um, that you cannot think for yourself. I mean, it's none of these things. And as we get into this a little, bit, a little bit this week and a little bit more next week, as we talk about what it means for a husband to lead and what it means for a husband to have some authority and to, and to be Christ in his home, which is a high, high, hard calling. But it doesn't mean to lord it over. And it doesn't mean, I do believe that marriage is a partnership. That he calls us to partner. We are brothers and sisters in Christ following Jesus together. Both of us imaging God. Both of us following Jesus. Both of us honoring him in the way that we treat each other. In the way that we relate to each other. And he's given us each a unique way to do that. And it doesn't mean that we don't talk about everything. It doesn't mean that a woman doesn't have opinions and should be listened to. And and it's a wise man who listens to his wife's counsel. Who seeks it. uh, Who desires it. And at times even submits to it. Because it's good advice. I, all the, well. <laughs> see how dangerous too, yeah. So, <clears throat> it doesn't mean you can't change your husband's mind. That There's not a place to have a conversation. It's not a place to, 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 to challenge his thinking and to come after, even to seek for him to grow and to change. It doesn't mean that none of that stuff can take place, but it does mean this, how you do it your attitude, your posture. Because this is not, Peter doesn't call wives to be servile. A woman is not her husband's slave. There has been more abuse out of these kind of passages in the history of the church that are, are ridiculous stories of of, of of husbands dictating everything in terms of where the pots and pans are and whether the wife has done this and that and controlling and manipulating them by controlling the money and doing all kinds of ways where he where he is not like Jesus at all (laughs) in the way that he does. I know there's room for abuse in it. Your wife is your sister in Christ and a daughter of the king. Piper there under number two, I like his definition. I was rooting around for a good way to say it, and Piper says it this way. The divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it out through and according to her gifts. It's the disposition, the posture, the attitude to follow a husband's authority. It's an inclination, a willingness, a desire to yield to his leadership. In other words, it's about respecting him. In fact, in that Ephesians passage, after he talks about a wife submitting to her husband and a husband loving his wife as Christ has loved the church, and he ends with that saying that a husband should should love his wife and a wife should respect her husband. And I do believe respect is at the core of this whole concept. Respect of your husband, but more importantly, respect of his God given position. And sometimes that's hard for us, and we do respect positions. We have people who are in authority over us, and we, they may not be people who are better than us, they may not even be smarter than us, they may not have more experience than us, I may not, all these kind of things, but they have a position. And I have to respect that position. And there are many ways that I have to submit to their leadership because they hold that position and if God should change those things. But we respect the God-given position. And it says that she should carry it through. That, that, I like this definition. The leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts you know, there's this whole thing in the, in the marriage, again, because people think, you know, you hear this thing, a man is supposed to be the spiritual leader, he's supposed to have authority, so he's supposed to do everything and be in charge of everything. And I say, that's absolutely not. I don't want to be in charge of everything, right? There are things that I don't want to be in control of. And when we give uh, different areas, in other words, who, who's going to lead the devotions in the house? And sometimes I hear it has to be the, the husband, because he's the spiritual leader, he has to lead devotions in the home. I think it's great if a husband does, but your work schedule, your abilities, your time, and all kinds of different factors come in. I think it is a beautiful thing when a wife steps up under her husband's authority, and, and if she's good at it and she delights in it and she has time for it to lead the family and devotions. I think it's a fine thing. Who's going to keep the checkbook and manage the finances? I don't know which one of you is better at money. Which one of you has more time? Which one of you is a clip better? And I know a lot of families where the wife's in charge of the money and keeps control of those things and organize it and somewhere the man is. It's it's a matter of we're partners and we're both gifted and we walk together and try to honor Christ and how we do these things and there's a division of labor and it doesn't mean that one person is in control of everything. We'll see as Jesus calls us to leadership in various ways, he warns us against lording it over other people, especially your God-given spouse and partner. And so a husband does submit to Christ as well by submitting to sacrificially loving his wife. And we will talk about that. And keep reminding you, we will talk about that next week. But he goes on to say that if the husband does not obey the word, right? It says you're to be submissive to your own husband so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they might be won without a word by the con- conduct of their wives. That they might be won over by the conduct of their wife. They don't obey the word. Peter has used this a couple times already to describe those who have not come to faith. So he very well may be speaking of an unbelieving husband here. Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 7. He said, if you have an unbelieving husband and he's willing to stay, stay. In other words, live with him. Um, and here Peter is saying, if you have a husband who does not obey the word, he is not a believer, even if he is a believer, and I'd say the second way you can understand it, even if he is a believer, but he's advocating his role, that he's not, he's not doing what he should be doing as a man of God and as a leader in the home. So either way, if they're disobeying the word, he tells us how to respond. If the husband doesn't obey the word, and both of these are difficult situations, and that's what Peter has been addressing whether it's in the culture or in the, in, the, in the work relationships that we have. Sometimes he says, whether it's a good master or a difficult master. Some marriages, there are difficult times and difficult situations. And so he says, even if he's not obeying the word, that a wife should conduct herself in such a way with respectful and pure conduct that she might win him to Christ. The beauty of godliness is what he is saying. The beauty of godliness as it is pictured in the wife and how she follows Jesus no matter what the husband does. That she honors Christ no matter what the husband does. That she believes in Jesus and trusts him and serves him and honors him in the way that she lives and relates to her husband no matter what her husband does. And the beauty of godliness is the best apologetic. Talking about this a little bit even in Sunday school. Um, The beauty of godliness is the best apologetic. And he says, live in such a way that you would win your husband, that he would see the beauty of Christ and what it means to follow him by by seeing Christ reflected in your life and in your attitude and in your posture. And then he moves into talking about this this way of living in respectful and pure conduct. And so in verse 3 through 6, he starts talking about how we adorn the gospel. And so how do we adorn it in our lives? How do we adorn it in ourselves? And so he starts talking about Clothing at first, right? You look at verses 3 to 6. He says, don't let your adorning be external. Hair, jewelry, clothing. Don't, don't let those things be the adorning of the gospel that we're looking for, the important things in your life. He says, but let your adorning be... To adorn something is to make it beautiful, right? It's to Dress it up and make it beautiful, to make it attractive. And he says, don't let your adorning be external, Right? Verse 4, he goes on, he says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, who you are before Christ. Your soul, your heart, your character, your, and therefore your posture and your attitudes, right? Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. When we manifest that spirit, the quiet and gentle Christ like spirit under difficult circumstances, he says this is very precious in the sight of God. But it should not be external hair, gold, clothes. The danger is we'll become superficial and excessive or pretentious. And just really what it comes down to is being focused on all the wrong things. He says our focus, our concern needs to be about the inner beauty of our godliness, of our attitude. Quietness and gentleness that he calls for as the nature of godliness is really the characteristic of every believer, right? So this isn't even something necessarily that's unique. It's a unique application. He says that it should be the the beauty, the inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Jesus says, come after me. My, My yoke is gentle. My yoke is easy and light. And he says, come and learn of me. I am gentle and humble of heart. Right, it's Christ-likeness. The husband is called to it too. The wife is called to it. But she's called to it in her own unique, distinct application as a woman, as a wife, in the role that God has given her. The husband is to manifest that same spirit in so many contexts as well as we imitate Jesus. Inner beauty. And let me just say there's a whole other sermon right here about clothing and gold and jewelry and and, you know, external concerns and that kind of stuff. Because I don't believe that Peter is forbidding these things. He's not forbidding nice clothes or the wearing of jewelry. Or many of us would be in big trouble this morning. Um, but he, he doesn't, I don't think that his point is to forbid these things. Peter is warning about focusing on the wrong things. About becoming superficial. See, we can dress it all up nice and go home and abuse each other. And not live in Christ-like way. Have postures and attitudes and... and, and but we dress it up so nice, right? And he's saying, look, you, you, you you can dress it up. I don't think he's even saying you can't dress it up. He's just saying it has some value, but the supreme value is the inner person of your heart, who you are before God in your imitation of Christ, right? It's a little bit, I think, like Peter. If you remember, Paul says in one place, he says that physical exercise is of some value, but godliness has value both for this life and the next. I believe it's the same kind of thing. Physical value has some some value. You You know, doing our hair and wearing some jewelry and dressing decently has some value. He says, but godliness, that's another story. That has a supreme value now and forever. And so don't get distracted. Don't put your efforts into the wrong place. Make sure before anything else that you're getting your heart right before Christ and following him at home as well as in public where we dress it up. And in verse 6, he moves on, and as he says, in 5 and 6, he says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God in the past used to adorn themselves. What did their adorning look like? He says it wasn't in their physical and external appearance, but he says they adorned themselves, he said, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, and she even called him Lord. Now, that's a hard statement. You read something like that, and there's a lot of folks who just seem like, how does this work? Right now, like, this is so up the stream. I, there are several sermons I've preached along the way where I think distinctly along the way. I could never run for public office because these things will come to light and I will just be ridiculed to no end. What does he mean? There's, when he says, it, Sarah called Abraham Lord, and the word there in the Greek is kurios. And it has both, it's applied to Christ in an ultimate sense, but it's also a term of respect in the culture. It was like calling someone sir. It was like calling someone with a respectful way, Mr., Sir. Uh, It's a sign of respect. I, I think culturally it's simply of the way, the point that those two verses I believe is this, the way that Sarah talked to her husband was respectful. Right? The way that she related, the way she talked to him, the way she talked about him showed respect, showed a proper posture toward the man that God had put in her life. Right? I don't think that we should call each other I actually well tell stories and run out of time. I want to hit a few applications here as we do this. Um, but that can be so abused. Let me come around again as we're going to talk to husbands next week. That simply this says that a wife's posture toward her husband needs to be one of respect. It doesn't mean we can't talk about things and share things and partner together. Absolutely the most beautiful marriages are the most beautiful partnerships. But it says there is there is a posture. So, how do we do this? This is hard. In some ways, this is hard. For some of you here this morning, for some ladies, you're like, yeah, I know. For some of you, you're thinking, I don't know, I'm going to go home. I encourage you to go home, search the scriptures daily to see if these things are true. And let God speak to your heart from Ephesians and from Peter and from Timothy and from Sarah and from the scripture from Genesis and Sarah down to Peter and here toward the end as he speaks to us. But it is hard. And the answer is, how do we do this? How how is a woman to do this? And the answer is this. As Peter has started out with this whole thing, as he said, do it for Christ's sake. Do it out of reverence, as Paul says, out of reverence for Christ, we submit to one another. That we do it in some ways. I don't just do what I do in relationship to my wife because she is the ultimate value. I I seek in my posture to my wife to honor God. I do it... For him, because I love him, because I serve him, because this is about obeying him. You really have to see, this is about you and God. This is about you and the Lord. This is about you and Jesus. This is about you and following Jesus. Right? And so we do it for Christ's sake and out of reverence for him. There is a, you know, when David says that he has sinned and he cries out, it's against you alone, oh Lord, that I have sinned. And there's a way when we fail to follow Christ, when we fail to live out his calling, And there's a sense in which first and foremost, we sin against the Lord who given these commands, made these designs, called us in these ways. And then we've also sinned against each other. So part of this is, is really about submitting to Christ. When we do it unto the least of these, he says, you've done it unto me. And there's some way when we do it unto each other in our marriages, we do it unto him. And as much as we don't do it unto the least of these and we don't do it unto each other in marriage, we have failed to do it to him. And so that's where we start. That's how we do it. We live for Jesus. There's a glory in it. There's a beauty in it. There's a reflection of God's image in it. You know that there is a Trinitarian, you know, in this whole economy of God as he creates it and says, we are created in his image and he creates us male and female and he says, and somehow being male and female is is imaging God. We see We are Trinitarian, and I'll start. There's a mystery there and a whole more series of sermons on there. But what we believe is this. God is one, and he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are distinct. They are one. They are distinct. And the Son is eternally in submission to the Father. And the Son in his incarnation is in submission to the Father. And he does only what the Father says, and he, and he works only the Father's works, and he seeks only to bring glory to the Father. And there is this beautiful submission of the Father to the Son. They are equal in power, equal in glory, equal in eternity, equal in their Godhead and in their, in, 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 in their deity. And yet, Jesus did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He humbled himself, not only to the Father, but to us by coming and living and laying down his life for us. And then tomorrow and next week, we come to the husband, who that is also a model for him, for us. But this is, this is there is a beautiful economy in the Godhead, in the Trinity, a submission in a, in a beautiful way that is mirrored in the home. Woman is not less of a person. She is in no way inferior. She is no way less competent. But she is God's image bearer and a sister in Christ with a distinct role in the economy of God. And so marriage is a partnership of equals with different roles. And authority and leadership does rest with the husband. And there's a relationship of mutual counsel and mutual understanding and mutual cooperation and mutual consideration and mutual love and mutual respect. We are free to disagree and to pursue discussion, but in such a way that endorses the husband's leadership and authority under God. It is marked by a submission to his lead. I believe many of the marriage difficulties that we suffer are role dysfunction. Husbands advocating. Wives usurping. When things get out and the battle lines are drawn. Wives will be tempted. Oh my. Let me say this and I'll close with with this. Wives will be tempted to wrest leadership from their husbands. If you, there's two verses there in your bulletin <clears throat> in Genesis chapter three, and I would encourage you to look at those. In Genesis 3, 6, we know that in the fall that there was by the sweat of our brow that we will, we will labor. We know in the pain of childbirth, but we also see something that we often forget. The same verse says this, to the woman he said, not only will I multiply your pain in childbirth, but your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And what does that mean? I believe it simply means this, that a woman will be tempted to take the leadership from her husband. She will be, be tempted to take authority away from her husband. But, but the husband's role is to rule. One of the reasons I believe that is the absolute right is in four seven. the next verse I have there for you, God is speaking to Cain. And he says, if you do well, you'll be accepted. And if you do not, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it, right? Its desire is for the mastery. Its desire is to own you. Its desire is to rule over you and to subject you. And he says, but you must rule over it in its proper place. Sin must be denied. And so I believe there is this unique temptation because of the way God has designed it and because of the fall that we are tempted to take leadership. Often we will justify it with the excuse that is of a husband's weakness or his failure or his sin or some way that he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing so I'll do it. I will take it. I have to. Otherwise it would all and we have what, however we justify it we say that we need to take over. But Peter says if he doesn't obey the word adorn the gospel in godly submission. So wives, consider in what ways can you do a better job of respecting your husband's authority? What way you can do a better job of submitting to his leadership? What ways you may have wrested leadership from him? What ways you may have taken control from him? Where you may be lording it over him? Where you may be disrespecting him? And to think through what it would look like for you to be Sarah's daughter in the calling that God has placed on us. Both roles of a husband and wife, and I close with this thought, imitate Christ. Both roles in a husband and a wife imitate Christ. Right now, I've said the wife imitates Jesus in his voluntary submission to the Father. The wife imitates Jesus in his voluntary not grasping after power and submitting himself and making himself in submission and in subjection. And a husband imitates Jesus, as we'll talk about next week. As head of his church. Both are beautiful. Both are powerful. Both are Christ-like. Both reflect godliness each in their own way, each reflecting the glory of God back to him. And so as Piper says, and it closes there, I want us to hear this call as something strong and noble and beautiful and dignified and worthy of a woman's highest spiritual and moral efforts because it is part of God's image. It is part of God's design. It is part of God's calling, and it is the imitation of Christ himself. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we have come to your word this morning, Some of these things may be hard to hear. Some of them may not be new. But I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that afresh we might hear your call on us. And, Father, I pray as we press not only into this week of considering uh, where we are in these things, I pray, Father, that you would prepare the men to hear next week from you as well and the high calling that you have placed on us as husbands and fathers and imitators of Christ. Father, soften our hearts and make us more like Jesus. For it is in his name we pray, amen.